Amen. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way there. Good morning. I hope you're okay. You seem a little dead. Totally fine. Uh, when he has everybody clap, though, I'm just going to tell you, the second service with fewer people is much more exuberant in their clapping. I don't know if there's more, but it seems louder. It's not a challenge, but I don't know. Do with that what you will. I am glad you're here this morning. I do hope by the end of the service you're more even encouraged than you are currently because we are going to talk about something that is pressing, beautiful, difficult, and incredibly encouraging. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, turn, tap your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If not, don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen, but we'd love to give you a paper Bible. We always want you to be looking up the stuff that we're saying. This is not unique to Hope Church. This is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. And it continues to have the power. It continues to have the life that it always has, if anything, more and more. So what we have been talking about is Jesus returning. And the fact of Jesus returning is something that Christians have always believed. The fact of Jesus returning, some kind of conclusion to history, is one of the great distinctions between a Christian worldview and the different ideas that were current when Jesus came. That that history is not some sort of a cycle, history is not some sort of a decline, but history is actually working towards an end point. That there's something happening with the way God is using the different centuries, the different generations, that there's movement towards some sort of a a point of not just ending, but beginning. And while we may, you, you may or may not believe that, the Bible talks about it consistently and throughout history. People have tried to understand from what the Bible says about these things when Jesus will be returning. Natural to have that curiosity But unfortunately, or I would say very fortunately, every time that you read the passages that talk about Jesus' returning, they also tell us very clearly that they're not going to tell us when Jesus is returning. And it's a little difficult, it's a little hard to hear maybe, but it is consistently taught through Scripture. And so, while we are thinking about the end of the world as we know it, and the book of 1 Thessalonians is written to teach a group of Christians, what they are to do as Christians in a very difficult situation. And the way that he goes about that teaching is he continues to remind them that the end of the world is coming, that Jesus is returning, and the implications from that truth matter. Our problem today, or one of many, and certainly something that rears its head when things get tricky, when things get difficult is that you do get people wondering or asking. You do get teachers popping up, attempting to answer that question of when will Jesus return. And what I want us to think about, because the truth of Scripture is the truth of Scripture. So more than trying to adjust Scripture or somehow read between the lines, what I want us to do is adjust our hearts to the truth of Scripture. Because he says, no one knows. Matthew 24, 36... Jesus is actually speaking. This is God himself speaking. This is the one who's returning, speaking. And look what he says. It's crazy. He says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. 
how no one is no one. Well, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, capital S, talking about himself, but the Father only. Now, we can ask theological questions about how an omnipotent God like Jesus doesn't know something. Love to talk with you about it afterward. Please ask me more questions. We've got to keep moving now. But what he's underlining is the total impossibility of you or me saying, I know when Jesus will return. And there's all kinds of danger to being a person who says that. The enemy has split the church over and over and over again with false teachers claiming exactly this. Read the story of American Christianity and watch these splinter groups that have done awful damage to the name of Christ and the message that we're preaching in the country. Specifically by saying, I, whatever this teacher is, know when Jesus will return. Follow me. And he plays on the fear of the people. He plays on maybe the laziness of some people. He plays on the pride of many people. We're going to talk about that. He splits the church. He plays on the pride of many people because... Let's, let's understand why it is we want to know. In the first place, I, I would want to know just as a planner. If we're going on vacation, it'd be good to know when we're going on vacation so we can plan. We've got to make sure the clothes are washed. We've got to make sure that somebody's watching the dog. We've got to make sure that the sprinklers are turned off or whatever. If Jesus is returning, that's an emphatic sort of thing to put on the calendar. And yet God doesn't deign to tell us that. So there's a part of me that rebels a little bit by saying, yeah, but you should tell me, though. I understand you're not going to tell these other dum-dums, but you're not going to tell me when you're returning? It's a little bit of pride. Or maybe you are somebody who studies the Scriptures really heartily, and you think, well, maybe I can figure it out. I've read a couple of history books, took an undergrad class on some American history, some European Western civil history. Maybe I can trace what God has promised I won't be able to trace. Maybe I can figure out and read between the lines. And I've been watching these YouTube videos and this guy started sounding kind of crazy, but eventually he started making a lot of sense. Really? No one knows the day or the hour. Now, why would God do that? We can make fun of the kind of impulse to want to know and call it proud or call it lazy or call it um, maybe this kind of idea that you can see, you can read between the lines when he promises you can't, but... I do think that God gives um, some ignorance there, that he hides that information for a couple of possible reasons. One, if pride wants the knowledge that we can't have, then accepting that there's knowledge that you can't have fosters humility. If you accept that God gets to be God and that you just have to be a kid in the back seat, And that every time you ask, are we there yet? He says, well, I'm not even going to answer that question anymore. I'm done answering that question because you can't even conceive of the answers I give. So just sit there. If you realize that he's dad and you're not, then a humility begins to grow. And you can look up from these desires that you have in yourself and see See him, see others. And that's what we get from reading these passages in Thessalonians. 
at the end of the section in chapter 4 and at the end of the section in chapter 5. Each of these sections where he really starts to dive in and talk about what we can know about Jesus' returning, he tells you the sum. He tells you the equation. What will you end up with by studying these things and thinking about these things? He says, verse 18 of chapter 4, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Courage. If you humbly accept who God is, what he's done, what he's going to tell you, and what he's not going to tell you, if you can learn what you can from what he has told you, you end up with courage and a focus on other people around you. Why do we need that courage? Well, death is coming, but we are going to see it differently. Two, the end is coming, and so we are going to live differently. Just a two-point sermon. My introduction's already super long, so you're welcome. But just a two-point sermon. Death is coming, but we're going to see it differently. And the end is coming, and so we're going to live differently. Let's read it together. Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Listen, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who don't have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring again with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, I want you to understand the way that God teaches us because I think even the format that he uses is instructive. What he doesn't give is a roadmap. What he doesn't give is a chart. He doesn't give a series of conditions, which if all of these conditions are met and you can understand and fully verify whether or not these conditions are met, then the end has come. Instead, he gives us situations like what was going on in this real place called Thessalonica with this real pastor who's trying to help these real Christians who are under real persecution. What he's doing, even in the format of how he answers the questions, is to start to build this humility to depend on one another in love and see what matters in all of this. It's not you cracking the code and having some secret knowledge. It's about you and I together being faithful until that time. The situation, again, in Thessalonica is that these believers only had Paul and his kind of uh, other men that were teaching and walking with him in this ministry, they only had them for a short amount of time before persecution came down so hard that the best thing Paul could do was head out, let the kind of temperature go down a little bit on the church in Thessalonica and write these letters and send Timothy to kind of see how they can serve them even through this persecution. And these people in Thessalonica may not have gotten the full teaching from Paul on the end times. He may not have communicated what they knew from what Jesus taught. And you'll see as we go that what Paul teaches is very much drawn from what Jesus himself taught in Matthew. They may not have gotten the full teaching or they had forgotten some of the details of Paul's teaching or just... They're the first generation of the church, and we don't realize exactly how much we're inheriting by being the something-something-something-nth generation of the church. What apparently was happening is that some of these believers are dying, and the Thessalonians are weeping without hope. 
They're going to their Christian funerals, and instead of having the Christian hope that we are supposed to have, they mourn like those without hope. Why? Well, again, they expected something different than we expect because they had had partial teaching or had forgotten some of Paul's teaching. And maybe they were expecting an immediate resurrection. Maybe they, they were thinking that the body would just come back to life in a sin just like Jesus has done. And think again about this situationally. Here's this little church. They've got only however many people they have, and they're clinging to each other because here this thing that has changed them radically, not accepted at all by their families or their co-workers, they cling to each other, the only other people that understand, and maybe eventually one of the older people in the community is starting to die of natural causes. Maybe it's a younger, loved person in the community that tragically, through some kind of medical situation, or possibly even just through persecution, is starting to go down. And the believers are repeating to each other the promises of the resurrection. They're thinking again about this core story of Jesus' life and ministry, that he came to live, then die, then be resurrected. Finally, the person does die, and everybody's around the deathbed holding their breath, waiting on this person to just pop back up. It doesn't happen. And one of the teachers says, well, you know, Jesus was dead for three days before he rose by Jewish reckoning, so let's wait on the third day. So maybe they wrap him up, maybe they don't, and they wait for the third day. The sunrise and the third morning, and the person remains dead that moment, they begin to weep and weep like those who have no hope. All of a sudden, death is just as menacing as it was before they found Christ and maybe even nearer because they also are under this terrible persecution. They accepted Christ and not only do they not now have hope in the next life, they're also, because they have Christ, most to be pitied because apparently there's no resurrection. So Paul writes to fix it. He wants them to see death differently. Verse 14 again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we always, we will always be with the Lord. Again, therefore, encourage one another with these words. First, look at the way he talked about death. He didn't just say death. He said, fall asleep. It's the same thing Jesus said about Lazarus. If you remember in the book of John, this Jesus guy is walking around doing all this ministry. He gets word that one of his close friends has gotten sick to the point of death. And instead of just healing him by a word or walking back and healing him or like enchanting a twig to somehow sin back and heal him or whatever he could have done as God... He stays where he is a couple more days. It seems from the text that he intentionally waits to go back to Bethany for Lazarus to die. And then they hear that Lazarus has died. And Jesus presents to them. He's like, no, he's fallen asleep. 
And the disciples are like, hey, fantastic. If he's getting some good sleep, then maybe he'll recover from this illness. And Jesus is like, no, no, ding-dongs, he's dead. And I'm glad that it happened so that I can build your faith with what I'm about to do with this Lazarus guy. And yet, saying dead, he meant, meaning dead, he said, fallen asleep. Paul's using the same language. Again, he's using Jesus' talk throughout this whole chapter and the next. And he says fallen asleep because there is a real beautiful metaphor in the way that we sleep, in the way that we wake, in the way that the Christian dies only to be awakened. Yeah, it does look like death. Yeah, it is death. But it's not death that stays dead. You don't stay down forever. It is a sweet laying down of your burdens before waking to true life forever. So he uses Jesus' words when he talks about being fallen asleep. And then he begins this, Paul begins this long description of the second coming of Jesus. What is this stuff that he describes? He, he's talking about the angels and the trumpets and the Lord coming on the clouds. Stuff we see Jesus talking about in Matthew. So hey, if you want to read what I'm talking about from Jesus in Matthew, please go home and read Matthew chapters 23 to 25. Think heavily, not just about the details of what he's saying about when and where and how he might come back, but think heavily about the giant portions on either side where he's teaching you truth about those truths. But he talks about how Paul is repeating Jesus when he's talking about him coming on the clouds and these trumpets and these angels and being called up to be with him. And Jesus even is reflecting on Daniel in Daniel 7 where he's talking about the Son of Man, that come, one like a Son of Man that comes on the clouds. And Jesus is telling his people and Paul is repeating to these people who are Jesus's, be courageous. Have courage. Now you have his spirit. You're surrounded by his people. You are hearing and memorizing and being encouraged by his word. And then... Whenever you do fall asleep, you will be with him forever. The courage that he's trying to put into their hearts is a courage that says you are his and you'll be with him forever. Let that sink in. He's saying that when you're close to him now, it's lovely. And we feel that. For me, it's, it's these moments when these guys are singing and they're saying the truths of the gospel and they're saying it with music, which is informing me on how to emote about those truths. Is this something that's supposed to make me sad and the music is sad? Or is this something supposed to make me kind of happy and dancey and the music's kind of happy and dancey? Those things inform for me this full emotion, this full feeling of what it is to be in the gospel, to be his and to understand that as I continue to live and be part of his community, that stuff is growing more and more and more. And my love of him is growing more and more and more. And that death then is just the final moment when I get to finally see his face. Second Corinthians, another place where Paul's talking about this, he says, We're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. That's us right now. But we're walking by faith, not by sight. We know that he's with us, that he's given us his spirit. We've got his word. We've got his people. And yeah, we're of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Because whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We may all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, good or evil. There's a warning. But before the warning, look at the promise. The promise is that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. When you close your eyes in that final sleep, you open them to his face. That's the promise that we have in death. That's the blessing that he's given to us. It's not something that we're going to go and seek, but it is something that we're tempted by. How much sweeter to set all this down and be with him forever, to pass through that veil and see what Moses longed to see but wasn't allowed to stand, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to survive, which is the full view of God's face. No, when you die, you will open your eyes and be home. That's why Paul has this kind of moment where he's, he's tempted by this idea. Philippians 1, he's saying, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. But what I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with the Lord, for that is far better. Do you feel that? We're not a feelings-based church. We're all about truth and faith. But do you feel that? You should. I mean, there's failings on my part to communicate it. But if you are his, that desire at some level should be there to be with him forever. If the ultimate weapon of the enemy is death, do you see how the Christian now can be fearless? Because remember, the whole reason that Paul's teaching them any of this is not to fill in some gaps or get them ready for the second coming. He's trying to help them to have courage in persecution. That this church needs to continue to do the work of loving each other and standing up for this glorious gospel despite incredible persecution. And the only way they're going to be able to do that is if they see death for what it is. That's the emphasis of this book. So if you're asking questions about when Jesus is going to return, and if you are looking for the things that that truth is going to give you, the number one thing on that list is courage despite death. Courage to work, courage to fight, courage to preach, courage to go out and keep the mission going despite persecution. This is where Romans 8 starts to really make sense. If you've ever read the book of Romans, it's this dense theological writing that Paul did for the church that he'd never been to in Rome. And the first seven chapters are deep theological writing about the gospel. You can get it if you read it. It's not impossible to read, but it's dense. Then chapter 8 is a reflection on that gospel, those first seven chapters. And in that chapter 8, he's just throwing out promise after promise after blessing after glory that comes from knowing this gospel. When you get to the bottom of Romans 8, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All different ways to die. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What is that quote? If your Bible's like mine, and it probably is, You've got that verse, verse uh, the second half of verse 36, in like kind of indentation to show you that it's a quote from something else. And if it doesn't, then those first three, four words at the beginning of the verse, as it is written, should clue you into the fact that he's quoting something else. If you actually go and look up the quote, it's Psalm 44 that he's quoting from. 
Psalm 44, 22. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And if you go and read that psalm, he is talking about the suffering of a righteous people. Nobody's righteous, but our suffering, our persecution that comes because we're preaching the gospel, boy, it feels that way. Here I am preaching your gospel, standing up for your glory and your name, and then I'm getting my arm broken. I'm getting my stuff taken. I'm getting my job opportunities lessened. I'm watching my kids be ostracized. And then that's just an American context. You go even further, it gets worse and worse. And so the psalmist continues in verse 23 and 24 of Psalm 44 saying, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? It feels like they're just totally abandoned. Rouse yourself, Lord. Don't reject us forever. Why are you hiding your face? Why don't you forget us and our affliction and oppression? And then the psalm kind of ends. But we know the answer to that question. He doesn't forget us. He sent us Jesus. He met us at exactly that point of our oppression. And instead of just wiping out the oppressors, he allowed their full oppression to fall on himself. God, holy, perfect God, suffering in our place. That's the meaning of the cross. The meaning of the gospel, the meaning of the cross is that Jesus, who was perfect and pure, yet received our punishment so that if we call on his name, he'll take our punishment and put it on him, take his righteousness and put it on us so that when you close your eyes and fall asleep and wake to see his face, you're not melted by his holiness and your sin. You are accepted, fully clean. Actually holy, not because of anything you've done, but because of the trust you've put in Jesus. That's a decision that you have to make. That's a faith that you need to grasp onto. Have you done it? That's the message of the gospel. And once you understand how the gospel impacts Psalm 44, 22, then you understand how Romans 8 continues. When he says, I'm sure, I'm, sh- I'm sure that neither death nor life Angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is he sure? Because all of these things, the big weapon that they have, the big final kind of thing they're going to use against you, their nuclear option is only your death. But the Christian sees death totally upside down and differently because for us, it's to be free. To be free and to be with him forever. That's how you can live fearlessly. Death is coming. But we are going to see it differently. When I got married to Rachel, I understood that one day she would bury me or I will bury her. Or we'll have some kind of Batman situation and both of us go down and our child becomes a superhero but probably she will bury me or I will bury her. And on that day, I will weep because this wonderful thing in my life is gone. But it's only gone for a moment. I'll weep, but I will weep with hope 
And my desire to be with Jesus and to be with his people forever is going to go up, not down. And my desire to see other people have that kind of hope, even in the midst of that kind of tragedy, is going to go up, not down. My desire to go and preach the gospel and plant churches and see justice out in the community is going to go way, way up. It's all this foolishness that's keep binding me to this stupidity of just daily life, of, of all the things that are just not connected to the kingdom of God, but I just get into and get excited about in the TV shows and the video games and the, the conversations about nothing and the hobbies that have nothing to do with the kingdom, that have nothing to do with the gospel. I'm just going to burn away like chaff in that grief when I see my only hope is the Father. Do you get that? Death is coming. We're going to see it differently. And because the end is coming, we're going to live differently. Chapter 5 has the same theme. He says, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. I'm not going to tell you about times and seasons because it's foolishness. He's going to come when you don't expect it. A thief in the night. He comes in the night because you're asleep at night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. What is he talking about? Well, again, he's saying, stop guessing, live with this truth in mind. He continues, so then let us not sleep. As others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus our Lord, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Keep awake and keep sober. It doesn't mean don't ever drink anything, and it doesn't mean don't ever go to sleep. Some of you are asleep right now. Don't go to sleep right now, but of course you're allowed to go to sleep. But we're not going to get drunk, and we're not going to close our eyes to the kingdom. We're not going to allow the things of this world to turn our head and slowly slow us down. Of course, there's sin of any kind that entangles and slows us from running, but there's all kind of silly that slows us down too. As we get excited about food or excited about travel or excited about our kids in ways that have nothing to do with the kingdom. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. But many modern Christians live as though it's their job to enjoy as many of those things as they can while keeping a minimum, a minimum necessary emphasis on the kingdom. Doesn't work that way. When he comes, what will he find you doing? Will he find you resting so that you can keep working? Or... Will he find you totally distracted by every kind of silly and every kind of sinful occupation the enemy can give you? No, we are going to stay busy. We are going to do justice. 
We are going to tell everyone. We are going to invest well. The whole point of Jesus' teaching is that the day is coming. And when the day comes, when the lights are on, when the door is open, will you be found with that breastplate of faith and love on, that helmet with the hope of salvation on, going about the work that you do with armor on? Or... We don't have a lot of time to go into all of this. We're already kind of out of time. But there's haziness. There's night that you can embrace. Some of it's silliness and some of it's sin and sickness. But some of it's sickness of the mind. Listen, there are conspiracy theories that have gained a lot of traction in our world and in our community. I want you to ask the question about the stuff that you're drinking in. Is it accelerating my work for the kingdom? Or is it decelerating my work for the kingdom? What is QAnon? What are you reading on Facebook? Is it filling you up with fear and hate of some mysterious cabal? Or are you being filled with a passion to bring God's gospel all over the world? So I understand this QAnon thing. The hook is they think that there's some sort of child sex slavery ring. Okay, that's not a conspiracy. That's happening in the world. If you're really afraid of it, if you really think it's happening, go give to legitimate organizations filled with heroes who are going all over the world to stop it from happening. You can write a check for that today and then get back to the work of gospel in our community. You think that there's some kind of awful thing happening to kids? That's not a conspiracy. It's really happening. That's why we want you to be involved with foster care. Talk to the Bantas later today. They'll tell you the stories about what's going on with these poor orphans in our community. No, don't let the enemy take this stuff and twist it in on itself and turn you into some kind of zombie before a YouTube page. Get to the work of the kingdom. We know he's coming. We know what is coming. Jump in. Jump into your community group. Jump into the community that God's given you in Christ. Jump into our work to see the hope passed on from person to person and planted all over this valley. Begin or continue or accelerate your kingdom work. When he opens that door and he finds you, and you say you're his servant, will he find you serving? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. Not how does Russia fit into this scheme that I've seen built of the end times. If it sounds harsh, I'm trying to be harsh. Stop being silly and let's get to work. But if it doesn't sound encouraging, then I've messed something up. Because the result of this is to encourage one another. So I hope it's giving you courage, and I hope it's giving you joy. I hope you're feeling the love that God has for you, even as you wake up from some of the stuff the enemy's trying to do to you. Lord God and Heavenly Father, please, this morning, mobilize our people for the fight and the work that you've given us to do. Lord, your glory and your goodness, they burn through all of this night and all of this darkness so that we live even now in the day with our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith.
Lord, would you just allow us to feel that joy and that courage, even in the face of death, so that we would live and be and work as more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.